Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 70, Go West. First, I want to mention a quick milestone. We, well, since the last time I recorded, we've hit 250,000 downloads in total since I switched to SoundCloud and started tracking. Now, the podcast existed for quite a while before I did that. I have no data from that time. But since I started tracking, quarter of a million downloads. That's almost exactly one download every six minutes for the past three years. So, just a huge thanks to all of you. That's a, a really big milestone. Really, it's more than I expected for this project. You know, I didn't start it with a lot of grand ambitions or anything. And uh, to see it have this kind of success really means a lot. And speaking of that success, as always, a big thanks to uh, our donors this year. We have two one-time donors, uh, George Ortel and Eaton Cohen, as well as Vladimir Lucas, who is now a supporter on Patreon. Big thanks to all three of you. Uh, I still need to re- reach out to Vladimir, but... Uh, you know, I've reached out and said thanks, and uh, yeah, consider supporting. All right, so getting into it. Last time, Mehmed the Conqueror set out to enact his revenge on Stephen the Great of Moldavia after receiving a crushing defeat in the barren winter landscape of that country. He succeeded, mostly, defeating the Moldavians but failing to conquer the country. This also began a battle for control of Wallachia, which saw the death of the mighty Vlad the Impaler and control of Wallachia by the pro-Ottoman Basarab Teperes Chiltanar to bring him to power there. And remember, he had actually been installed by Stephen, but like his predecessors, had kind of bowed to Ottoman pressure and sided with the Ottomans when push came to sho- comes to shove. But before Mehmet could deal with the unfolding situation in Wallachia, he finally finished the 16-year-running Ottoman-Venetian War by capturing the great Albanian fortress of Kruje and besieging the Venetian fortress of Škodra, finally forcing the Venetians to a humiliating peace. Now, as we begin this episode, the Ottomans are triumphant against Venice and Albania, but facing some setbacks in Wallachia and Moldavia. The question in the air is, Where will Mehmet take his armies next? Well, the greatest fear is no doubt that the Ottomans will invade Italy. I mentioned it last time. And, well, Mehmet's next move was going to be in Transylvania, part of Hungary at the time. But at this time, I mentioned, yeah, Transylvania is part of Hungary, and our best guesses indicate that there was some sort of agreement between Hungary and the Ottomans for many years, which had the two sides leaving each other alone. But the mid-1470s saw that agreement begin to break down as Hungarian and Ottoman interests clashed in Wallachia and Moldavia. And so while the Ottoman-Venetian War had been wrapping up, Ottoman raiding parties had done some damage in the region, carrying away tens of thousands of prisoners ahead of a more substantial Ottoman invasion. But the geopolitical situation was changing. 
Stephen the Great was attempting to pull together yet another great anti-Ottoman alliance, even including the Golden Horde. However, his attempts quickly ran into difficulties. First, the Poles refused to allow the Tatars, of the Golden Horde, to cross through their territory, even if it meant attacking the Ottomans. Then, once Venice, Hungary, and Poland all made their own peace with the Ottomans, well, none of them were willing to break that peace for any reason, and so Stephen was on his own. In the late summer and early fall of 1479, just months after the Ottoman-Venetian War wrapped up, the Ottoman army entered Transylvania in October. Now, it was a relatively small force, six to 20,000, mostly cavalry, along with some Wallachian infantry under the command of the reluctant ally Basarab. In essence, it wasn't a full invasion. It wasn't a conquest invasion. It was just a very large raiding party. The Hungarians had a little more than half the soldiers of the Ottomans, maybe twelve to 15,000, consisting of Hungarians, Serbs, uh, and Saxons who lived in parts of Transylvania, still do, along with a few Wallachians who were serving Basarab Cel Batran, who was trying to overthrow the other Basarab and become Voivoda of Wallachia himself. Also, among them was one Vuk Grgevich, the grandson of Durad Brankovic, the last real despot of Serbia who had fought in the Crusade of Varna and helped defeat Mehmet at the Siege of Belgrade 23 years previously. Grgevich was essentially a Hungarian noble now, ruling in Vojvodina, but he still held the title despot of Serbia. Though, like the Hungarian kings, who you'll remember still held the title King of Bulgaria, it offered little more than prestige at this moment. But the point was, there were some famous figures amongst the Hungarians. Anyways, when the two armies met in Transylvania, the voivoda of the region was very nearly captured by the Ottomans. Now this is a good start for them, and they dominated the early stage of the battle. That is until the Hungarian general in charge led a devastating charge with Hungarian and Serbian cavalry. The Ottomans began to fall back as the cavalry expanded on their success to smash into the Ottoman center and their flank. The result was a chaotic general retreat for the Ottomans. Of course, the problem was that the Carpathian Mountains lay between the Ottomans and safety. And as they crossed these mountains, many were picked off by locals. More than half the Ottoman force are believed to have been killed, as well as a portion of the Wallachians, totaling well over 10,000 men. Well, this was a substantial victory. Remember, it was a victory over a raiding party. And the Ottomans have shown time and time again that they can comfortably absorb losses like this. Still, it was another example of a vital psychological victory for anti-Ottoman forces and made it extremely unlikely that the Ottomans would raid Transylvania again anytime soon. But that didn't mean the Ottomans would finish their raiding elsewhere. The next year, 1480, saw an Ottoman raid in Styria, central Austria, south of Vienna, that's the, the region. But unlike previous Ottoman raids of Austrian territory, this time they did devastate Hungarian-controlled Croatia on their way home. 
So this is a pattern we're going to see repeat for a while, that the Ottomans previously had raided up into Austria, left the Hungarians alone. Now these raids are going to be more devastating. Now, quick note, remember, the Austrians and the Hungarians recently went to war in 1477 and 1478, but at this moment, things had calmed down significantly. Still, they were not on good terms, which may have hindered their ability to coordinate dealing with this raid. But in any case, the same year, Hungary retaliated by conducting its own raids on Ottoman-controlled Serbia and another in Bosnia, reaching as far as Sarajevo. Now, this was the first major raid on Ottoman territory in more than two decades and showed that, well, anti-Ottoman forces were willing to go on the offensive. Remember, think back, it's been a very long time since anti-Ottoman forces have really gone on the offensive against the Ottomans. From the Albanians, the Venetians, to the Hungarians, Wallachians, the Moldavians, everyone has been playing defense for decades. So, though it was just a raid, symbolically, it meant a lot. Now, Mehmet intended to respond, especially because that same year, after promising to resume tribute, double tribute in fact, and make peace, Stephen of Moldavia was now preparing for war again. But the Sultan was busy elsewhere. He couldn't focus on these places because, well, remember that big question at the beginning of the episode? Where will Mehmet strike next? How will he kind of build on his victory over Venice and Albania? Well, obviously a large raid on Transylvania didn't exactly require the full attention of Mehmet and his armies. And if you notice that, then congratulations for paying attention, because in early 1480, Mehmet had prepared a massive fleet of 160 ships prepared to carry more than 20,000 men to invade, despite the greatest fears of Venice, the Pope, the kings of Aragon and Naples, it was not Italy. No, this force was ready to take on the island of Rhodes, controlled by the Knights Hospitaller. They arrived in Rhodes in late May and were ready to besiege its main fortress, the Tower of St. Nicholas, and ultimately capture the island. They quickly landed and prepared the siege and began to bombard the walls, defended by only around 3,500 soldiers and knights. After just over two weeks, the Ottomans made their full, first full-scale attack, but it was repelled. They had prepared their defenses well, even constructing a new layer of inner walls inside of those outer walls in case they were breached. Another major attack a month and a half later saw 2,500 Janissaries successfully take a tower and begin to enter the city. But the defenders counterattacked within the walls causing massive casualties for the Janissaries who'd made it into the city. The Ottomans began to retreat as the defenders rushed forward to capture what they could from the Ottoman camp. Well, by August, the Ottomans decided to cut their losses and abandon the attempt to take the fortress and the island. Thousands of Ottomans were wounded and killed by this point, and those who survived did not return to their homes because yet another seaboard invasion was already underway. Back in July, while the Ottomans were still attacking that fortress on Rhodes, another 128 ships carrying, again, nearly 20,000 soldiers, mostly infantry, as transporting horses on ships is tricky, to say the least. Well, this force landed on the tip of the boot of Italy, 
well, the heel of the boot, we can say. And so, yes, the fears were coming true. The Ottomans had invaded Italy. Their presence was now finally being felt outside of the Balkans and occasionally Central Europe. Again, the greatest fears of Aragon, Naples, the Pope, and Venice were coming true. The Ottomans were coming for their lands, and not just somebody else's far-off lands. Now, sources I found say that some of the soldiers in the invasion came from the failed attack at Rhodes, when we were sort of redirected. But they also say these forces landed before the attack on Rhodes had completed, so my best guess is that some soldiers joined later. But in any case, the Ottoman force began its invasion by attacking the castle of Otranto. After laying siege for 15 days, the Ottomans mounted a full-scale assault. Just as in Rhodes, the Janissaries breached the walls and rushed into the city. But this was not a city defended by an elite military order like the Knights Hospitaller. The defenders were far less prepared and so not able to fend off the Ottomans once in the city. And so Entranto fell almost immediately. The city was looted, its inhabitants were killed or sent into slavery, and, well, the city suffered immensely. The main cathedral was converted into a mosque, and just like that, the Ottomans had a foothold in Italy. Now there's a story of 800 men in the city who were given a choice to convert to Islam or die, and who chose death. Now, these men were canonized by the Catholic Church in 2013. However, you'll remember I said recently that forced conversions rarely, if ever, happened with the Ottomans. Well, historian Nancy Bissaha writes of the incident, quote, Recently, though, historians have begun to question the veracity of these tales of mass slaughter and martyrdom. Francesco Teteo argues that the earliest contemporary sources do not support the story of 800 martyrs. Such tales of religious persecution and conscious self-sacrifice for the Christian faith appeared only two or more decades following the siege. The earliest and most reliable sources describe the execution of 800 to 1,000 soldiers or citizens and the local bishop, but none mention a conversion as a condition of clemency. Even more telling, neither a contemporary Turkish chronicle nor Italian diplomatic reports mention martyrdom. One would imagine that if such a report were circulating, humanists and preachers would have seized on it. It seems likely that more inhabitants of Otranto were taken out of Italy and sold into slavery than were slaughtered. End quote. So yes, the Ottomans could be brutal as any conquering power could, but remember that many of the accounts of these sort of brutal forced conversions were written decades later by people with an interest in creating anti-Ottoman propaganda. It doesn't mean they're all wrong, but the critical eye of the historian I just quoted gives us a good idea of how we should analyze these claims. Anyways, having secured a base in Italy, the Ottomans now conducted smaller-scale attacks on cities all around the boot, even on Viesta, about halfway up the Italian Adriatic coast. These continued through the fall of 1480. However, as winter approached, the Ottomans didn't have the necessary supplies to keep their entire force in Italy, and so the bulk left for Albania, leaving 800 infantry and 500 cavalry behind to defend Otranto. The plan was to return in the spring with a larger force and commence the advance along the Italian boot. However, as I've mentioned, 
nearby powers took this Ottoman invasion extremely seriously. Constantinople had fallen just 27 years previously, and it took no great imagination to believe that Rome could easily fall too. So unsurprisingly, the Pope called for a crusade to throw the Ottomans back into the sea. Local Christian powers responded, except for Venice because, well, they just signed a peace treaty and they were not about to restart a war with the Ottomans. By May of 1481, a Neapolitan and Hungarian army was at the gates of the city, which had yet to be reinforced for the spring. But the question was, why? I mean, southern Italy is certainly warm enough by May that what could have stopped the Ottomans from reinforcing such a hard-won prize? Well, only the worst news imaginable for the Ottomans. Mehmed the Conqueror was dead. He was just 49 years old. When news reached Ottoman forces, they panicked, they were inconsolable. But when news reached the Christians, Christians across Europe rejoiced at this respite. While the Ottomans mourned the loss of their greatest sultan, the one who had rightly earned the moniker, the conqueror, Christians believed they might be saved. Within a year, Ivan Chernoyevich had returned from Italy and re-established the Principality of Zeta, along with John Castriotti II, son of Skanderbeg, who is now leading an Albanian uprising to restore what his father had fought so hard for. In Italy, by August, the crusading army had recaptured Otranto. In a way, this may seem reminiscent of what happened to the Bulgarian Empire so often after the death of their great Tsars and Khans. Expansive conquests immediately retract as soon as the great character leading them dies. However, the Ottoman Empire was ultimately a very different beast. It was far larger, its commanders and governors had far more resources and autonomy. True, Mehmed's death put to rest plans for further attacks on Moldavia, Hungary, Italy, and Rhodes. But the empire was not about to contract the way Bulgaria had done. Still, it's worth thinking, what was the legacy of Mehmed? What empire did he leave behind? To begin, he was without a doubt far more than just a successful conqueror. True, he had led the Ottoman Empire to new conquests, often conducting several offensives in a single campaign season at once. Something we haven't really seen much before the Ottomans, or really any state we've been covering. None of them seem to have had the resources to send out two large armies or three smaller armies, for example, to conduct major raids or offensive operations. This was vital as it reduced but did not eliminate the threat of a two-front war that was so ever-present in Byzantium and Bulgaria. The Ottomans, sure, they couldn't send out 200,000-man armies, but they could send out a few 40 to 50,000-man armies. Beyond the conquests, Mehmed also had legacies of things like establishing a more concrete legal system and precedents. Also, unsurprisingly, he founded mosques and religious schools all over the expanding empire. And, well, we still can't forget that his conquests were substantial. Constantinople, significant territory in eastern Anatolia, the kingdoms of Bosnia and Serbia, as well as Albania and various Venetian territories. But perhaps above all of these, Mehmet truly established what an Ottoman sultan could be or should be. He spoke Ottoman 
Serbian, Arabic, Persian, Latin, and Greek. He wrote poetry, loved Greek antiques, and worked to ensure they were not destroyed in his conquests. He could discuss Islamic theology just as well as he could discuss literature and philosophy. He was also, as it appears from several chronicles, bisexual, but that's a bit beside the point. Still, taking all this together, Mehmet was a man comfortable at the front line leading his armies and discussing poetry and philosophy in several languages. He was okay improving the administration of the empire. He was, in other words, not a figurehead, he was a leader. And the consequences for his enemies were dire, to say the least. But I think it's worth to see this in contrast with many other leaders we've seen in this podcast. Some are great military generals, but have no real skill for diplomacy or for administration. Others, some other combination of those. It's very rare to get someone who has really all of them together. And Mehmet's life shows just what capabilities arise from possessing those characteristics. And so what of his death, though? Mehmet was only 49 and died suddenly. What happened? Historian Colin Haywood said, quote, There is substantial circumstantial evidence that Mehmet was poisoned, possibly at the behest of his eldest son and successor, Bayezid. End quote. Well, we'll never know for sure, but that brings us to the succession. Now, Mehmet had three sons. The middle son doesn't seem to have wanted the throne, so that leaves the other two. As Mehmed died unexpectedly, there was no designated successor, and his eldest and youngest sons both wanted the job. Bayezid II, again possibly the one who poisoned Mehmed, he was the eldest son, 34 years old, son of Mehmed and his first wife, Emine Gulebar, who was an Albanian woman by all accounts, and then the youngest son, Sultan Chem, who was 22 his third son, to a wife who was probably of Serbian origin. Now, both were governors of important provinces around central Albania. But that also meant neither of them was in Constantinople to be ready to claim the throne, as Mehmet died quite close to the city. And this is a case maybe that that Bayezid did not poison Mehmet, because, well, it seems weird. If you're going to poison him, then you should probably be there so you can kind of take control. Though maybe it was for deniability, hard to say. In any case, the deceased Sultan's body was brought to Constantinople and kept there for three days by his Grand Vizier, with the plan being to await the arrival of Cham, the youngest son, who was closer to the capital. Problem was that Bayezid was extremely well connected with the powerful Pashas and the Janissary Corps. And so through these connections, he discovered just what the Grand Vizier was up to. In response, the Janissaries prevented Cham from entering the capital to claim the throne, and then rebelled and lynched the Grand Vizier. The situation was now extremely dangerous as it was not clear who was in charge in Constantinople, as both claimants to the throne were still in Anatolia and the Grand Vizier was dead. A former Grand Vizier, an ally of Bayezid, took action, proclaiming Bayezid's 11-year-old son as regent until his father could make it to the city and claim the throne. This would at least provide some measure of stability in the meantime. In late May, Bayezid arrived in Constantinople and was crowned, but his half-brother Cham was not ready to give up. He captured a small city near Bursa. 
Bayezid sent an army to kill his half-brother, but it was defeated, leading to Cem declaring himself to be Sultan of Anatolia, using the old Ottoman capital of Bursa as his capital, and proposing the empire be divided, with Bayezid ruling the European portion and Cham ruling the Asian portion. But it should come as no surprise that Bayezid would have none of it, and this time marched on Bursa himself to confront his half-brother's forces. In late June, the two armies met, and this time Bayezid was victorious. Still, he failed to capture and kill Cham, who fled to Cairo, then the capital of the Mamluk Sultanate, now a declining but still important Islamic power in the region. Next time, we'll see just what results from this civil war. Will Cham be able to return to Constantinople at the head of a Mamluk army? Will this trigger a wider war between the Ottomans and the Mamluks, or between other players in the region? And perhaps most importantly, will this period of Ottoman distraction provide an opportunity for European powers to strike? Well, you'll have to listen next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.